Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. A few things uh, just to remind you go to wealthformula.com. Lots of things to download there, including my free book on Amazon, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. It's not a free book on Amazon, actually. On Amazon, you have to pay me. But if you go to wealthformula.com, you can just download that book for free in PDF format. You can also get that. If you don't get to a computer, you can text me at 44222 and type Wealth Formula. That's one word. Again, 44222 and type Wealth Formula, one word, and you can get a free copy of that book. Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth uh, delivered to your email. Also, there is the Weekly Wealth Widget, which I encourage most of you to do. Those of you who you know really have spent most of your time with your nose in the books and haven't had a chance to significantly increase your financial IQ, you know you get small bits of morsel-sized uh, financial information at your email door every Friday, and so that's definitely worth it. Now, the other day. I was talking to somebody in my investor club. And by the way, if you are an accredited investor, meaning you make $200,000 a year or you have a net worth of a million dollars outside of your personal residence, you should definitely sign up for investor club because by definition, you are an accredited investor. And there's lots of interesting deal flow and education. People love it. So sign up if you haven't. Now, anyway, so the next step is usually when you sign up, you talk to me. And so I was talking to one of our members and he was telling me that it was really hard for him to look around and see things that we were talking about, whether they be funds or deals or whatever, that were offering, you know, high single digit or double digit returns and to actually, you know, take them seriously. I mean, he was comparing them to the low single digits of dividends in the equity markets. And if double digits were available to people outside of the markets, he wondered why in the world would people buy bonds? Well, that's a good question. You know, and I actually hear this more often than you might think. And I'm not, you know, I'm definitely not trying to rip on this uh, accredited investor. I mean, my point is that you hear this all the time. Why? Because we've been brainwashed, folks. We've been brainwashed by Wall Street and conventional wisdom. And they want you to think that any time that returns go higher than four to five percent, it is associated with high risk. They'll call it a high risk investment, you know, just like they call real estate an alternative investment. You know, this is so crazy because I know guys who are sponsors. I know fund managers that would, they would pay out double digits to their investors, but they don't. And the reason they don't is because they don't want their investors to perceive what they're doing is too risky, right? I mean, isn't that just completely 
ridiculous. I mean, you're getting lower returns because if the returns were higher, you would think it was too risky. Folks, this is a paradigm shift. You are getting ripped off and you need to wake up. I mean, how do I know that you can make high returns with low risk? Well, because I own zero stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, and I'm doing pretty well. But don't listen to me, okay? Listen to a guy like Richard Wilson, and he's a guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast. Richard is the founder of Family Office Club, and he works with $100 million plus net worth families. And when you listen to what he has to say, compare it to my message to you, and come to your own conclusion. So when we come back, Richard Wilson. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Richard C. Wilson. Now, Richard is founder of the Family Club Office, the largest membership-based family office association with over 1,500 registered family office members. Now, Richard specializes in helping 100 million-plus net worth families create and manage their single-family offices and currently manages 14 clients himself, including three billionaire families. Now, he's an expert speaker on the topic of family offices, having spoken at over 150 conferences in 17 countries. He's also the author of the number one best-selling book in the family office industry, The Single Family Office, Creating, Operating, and Managing the Investments of a Single Family Office. He also recently released another book called How to Start a Family Office, Blueprints for Setting Up Your Single Family Office. So, Richard, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me on here today. Appreciate it. So really interesting niche that uh, you're in, and I'd love for you to kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up getting into this niche of family offices. Yeah, so I started the Family Office Club in 2007, just seeing that there is a real lack of thought leadership, resources, and ways to connect with family offices. So we looked to create that brick by brick. At the beginning, it was cocktail networking sessions and half-day events and writing a white paper or some articles and that grew on itself into launching our, you know, qualified family office professional kind of certification program. And we've done 71 uh, full day conferences now in the past decade and really growing our practice areas, whether it's helping a $300 million family start their single family office or just help somebody learn what the family office industry is all about as a managing partner of a law firm trying to navigate this new space. So the end of the day, I mean, you're nice enough to read a relatively long bio, but the Family Office Club is simply just trying to make the industry easier for people to understand and easier to navigate, whether they're on the, the buy side and they're looking to allocate capital or the sell side and they're looking to raise capital for their real estate deal or private company, et cetera. So as one of the things that uh, we talked about prior to the show is that, you know, my listeners tend to be high paid professionals, so they may make a few hundred thousand dollars. Maybe you have a net worth of a you know a couple million dollars or credit investors that sort of thing, but they're not familiar with this world of family offices, and they might not. Some of them might not have 
or even heard of a family office. So can you kind of explain sort of the short and sweet of what exactly is a family office? Sure. So essentially at the core of it, it's just a holistic wealth management solution for managing anything that could impact your balance sheet. The more accurate, detailed answer is that there's a few different types of family offices. And at the core, you just need to know that there are single family offices where your 15-person team or 100-person team is just working for you and your family. And that can be small for someone that's worth you know, 10, 20, 30 million. It might be some of your your listeners or a good chunk of your listeners, or it can be large for a multi-billion dollar family. You know, we have, we have two families that are worth over $3 billion that we represent. And, you know, they obviously have more staff than the small ones. And then the second type of family office besides a single family office is a multi-family office. And all that means is that a wealth management firm has a more holistic offering that makes sense for those that are ultra wealthy, for those that are worth 10 million or more. And they could be serving several hundred clients in that way. And, you know, most of the time when you read about big family offices and big brands that are being very public with their investing, it's either a George Soros type who famously converted his hedge fund into a family office-like structure, or it's a multifamily office that really is trying to get their name out there to attract more clients. You know, when a family comes to this and say they're at the 10 or 15 or $20 million range, which, you know, probably, you know, some of our listeners might be headed towards if they're not already there what makes a family turn towards this sort of concept of a family office in the first place? Well, I mean, the concept really exists to reduce chaos, hopefully reduce both taxes and fees, and increase your ability to attract deal flow and joint venture opportunities with like-minded families who are either titans of their industry or have created a lot of wealth, usually within an operating business or a real estate strategy. And the reason it exists is that as you become more wealthy, a few things become true. One, you're busier than most other human beings on planet Earth. Two, that a small mistake, let's say that costs you 3% extra taxation in a year or 3% loss in your net worth because of a trust not being structured the right way. And by the way, you could lose 20% and not just 3%, but just a 3% mistake could have paid for a whole team that would get you better deal flow, reduce fees, reduce taxes, avoided that mistake as well as others. And the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to make mistakes because there's more going on and the more costly those mistakes are. So a family office is just an attempt to have some central system in place. Like many of your listeners, I bet, are at the point where they're not working in their business, at least not for more than 20% of their time. They're probably working on their business a lot of the time, building their staff, you know, coming up with new marketing ideas and joint ventures and they're probably not working in their business, actually closing sales every day and actually fulfilling services for clients to a large degree. They're probably working on their business. Well, a family office is when you start working for a percentage of your time, working on your portfolio of businesses or working at that next system level of organizing anything that touches your portfolio and, and putting your brain there instead of on your one business. So. When somebody uses a family office, they're not necessarily just handing off their money and saying, go invest. It's there. They are still part of that hands-on sort of making decisions, but they just have it more streamlined. Is that fair or is it sort of run the gamut? It kind of runs the gamut. There's a full spectrum. You know, there's over 20,000 family offices globally. And for a second, third generation family that wants high diversification and they just want to preserve capital and not mess it up for the next generation. There are some multifamily offices that 
will just manage everything for you and you don't have to be involved if that's what you want. They'll be happy to charge you the fees and try to be a good steward of your wealth. There are family offices out there that do that and you could give them 20%, 40%, 70% of your net worth or liquid assets. You know, all these numbers would be different based on your situation and what's appropriate, of course. Anything we say, obviously, you should, you know, consult an expert for your specific situation. But, you know, if you wanted to have a percentage of your portfolio allocated to the general markets or in a very diversified strategy, you could do that. Or you can manage all the assets yourself and have full direct control and do 100% direct investing. And some families do that as well. The most common thing, which might be helpful for people to hear, is that most people who did not create their wealth in real estate allocate 20 to 30% to real estate and real estate-like hard assets like self-storage, apartment buildings, maybe hotel-type properties, etc. And then a lot of them, if they created their wealth in manufacturing or food and beverage or in distribution, will allocate another 20% to 50% to where they made their money or some parallel industry that leverages their core DNA and team and processes and research and unique abilities. And then the remainder typically is kept semi-liquid to jump on a real estate or a stock market or a in-their-core-industry opportunity that's unexpected, whether that's an economic downturn and they want some cash on hand to jump on that or emergency cash for some joint venture, et cetera. So there's so many family offices out there, it's pretty hard to say what the typical portfolio looks like. But on a very high level, with a very broad stroke, most $100 million-plus families and, and even $50 million-plus families have a portfolio that roughly looks like that. But for sure, it needs to be customized based on about 60 questions that you should be asking yourself before doing anything. So one of the things that you were sort of alluding at, which I think is uh, interesting and appropriate for our show, is that it sounds like a lot of the types of investments you're talking about that these uh, family offices make are more direct investments into assets and businesses, either as a, a loan or as part of some sort of syndication. Um, is is that fair that this is probably a high percentage of the types of investments that are made? Yes, I think a lot of families create a family office because their first generation wealth in most cases are the new family offices being created and they've spent their life creating their wealth and it doesn't make sense in their brain to hand it off to a third party after having control and producing value from the world and producing it for other people and getting monetary returns for that to then hand it off to someone else and hope they don't lose it. So they appreciate control and they appreciate transparency. That's how they've had to run their business. They don't trust a manager and never inspect what they're doing or don't have control over their budget, et cetera. Um, And even in the case where they really trust that third party, it's hard to trust a large percentage of their portfolio because they truly have shown that they can create more value typically in their industry or niche. Sometimes they just had good timing But they typically have processes of creating value and strategies that they believe are superior, you know, to what somebody might be able to deploy in a diversified fashion. So direct investments is a big part of family office portfolios because of that's how they created their wealth typically and that level of control that's typically desired. I'd also add that families worth 10 million or under or 30 million or under many times have to acquire either smaller businesses, maybe businesses only making two to 500,000 a year in profits. Uh, or a little bit more, or they have to make minority investments. And I would say a lot of families under 20 million end up making 50% or more of their direct investments, minority investments. But those families worth 50 million or 100 million or more are making the majority of their investments, I've found, at least among my client base, 
as majority control investments and they have the ability to go mm-hmm. into the half a million to three million a year profit companies and grow them up to a private equity size potential exit. And I think that's important to point out because many investors are not carefully setting up minority direct investment controls and structuring agreements to really protect themselves. And it's hard to protect yourself. And sometimes no matter what the contract says, you don't get protected and bad things happen and it's not worth suing somebody to get your 50000 or 200000 or $400,000 back. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But the point is a lot of families want to make that control investment, especially as they get to 20, 30, 50 million in net worth or higher. So in your experience, and obviously you've worked with a lot of high net worth people, and there's certainly variety in this, but when you have these people and you're working with them, what's typically the role of the intangible assets and the equity markets for the types of people that you're, you know, that you're representing? I mean, are they investing a significant portion of their assets in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds still? Or, you know, obviously you just mentioned the, the strong component of direct investing, but what role do the more sort of traditional things that, you know, the professionals invest in make up for these people? If the family did not make their money in currencies, commodities, or stocks and bonds, uh, or the general marketplace as a hedge fund of some type, I found that most often they want some market access so that they might be tracking you know, the S&P or they might have a couple favorite fund managers and then they want some market exposure to kind of beat inflation in a relatively conservative fashion typically. But if they didn't make their money in one of those areas I just named, I found that usually they have a private bank or a multifamily office managing that portion of their wealth. And then they apply their energy to what you know Dan Sullivan would refer to as more of an area that's their unique ability where they can add more value than other people in the world, potentially in investing where they made their money or with common strategies that they've deployed and they find work over and over again. So most families are not trying to become experts at managing stocks you know, on their own internally, they're really doing it through third parties, essentially, you know, whether it's private bank or multifamily yeah, office. Yeah. We are trying to extrapolate a little bit for our crowd based on your experience with people who are probably, you know, at maybe 10 to 100 times or more net worth from the lessons that you've learned or the things that you've seen. What kind of advice would you have, you know, for someone making that maybe four or $500,000 per year and who has a net worth of say three or $4 million, given your experience with the much higher wealth individuals? That's such a good question. Almost nobody asked me this question and I've done probably 50 or 60 podcast interviews and I usually have to proactively bring it up. And really it's what keeps me motivated in working and um, seeing how my clients create wealth and then propel their wealth or hearing their wealth creation stories never gets old and for obvious reasons. And I think that um, I want to point out a couple things. One thing is one of my favorite quotes is by Warren Buffett and he talks about how the tide is more important than the swimmers many times. So you could be Michael Phelps and if you're swimming the wrong way up the Amazon River, you might not move at all. Or you could be my two-year-old daughter and if you're swimming the right way down the Amazon River, you might move faster than Phelps. And so the point of that is, you know, look for the trends in your industry and ride those trends. I wouldn't switch industries chasing momentum, but I would look at all the opportunities in front of you. And if you're like most entrepreneurs, you have too many, then you have time to tackle. I would choose the ones where you're going to be riding a future wave of momentum and you're not chasing embedded competitors. And that goes hand in hand with another one of my favorite quotes by Peter Thiel, who in his book Zero to One says that the best way to predict the future is to really look at 
what in your industry or sector do you think is inevitable and is a change coming, but nobody sees it yet? And some people might not even think that that change is going to happen because it's still far enough away. It's murky. They don't know if it's going to be in 12 years, 15 years, or in seven years. And if you can really own that change and expedite the inevitable and get ahead of that and own some turf that's not occupied by embedded participants and publicly traded companies, et cetera, then I found that is another good way to think about momentum and how to grow your wealth more quickly by writing changes in industries. Many times, smart use of debt and smart market timing and smart structures or leveraging other people's capital is another way that my clients have built their wealth. But the most important thing that I wanted to mention, I think, is useful for everybody listening because it doesn't require capital. It is approaching your business in a more complex fashion. So you're not relying upon one way of making sales. You don't have just one main strategy for growth. It's really thinking how you can obtain choke points in your industry and either be dominant within a niche and really own that niche and triple down on that and you know, be able to monetize it more than your competition, which would allow you to pay for more leads and pay for more clients than your competition could, or to build a platform business. So whenever you have a new customer from one of your two or three operating businesses come in, they could be cross-sold and upsold to the other operating businesses you have. And now you're operating at another level and you're able to offer things to clients that's a more holistic solution, a more complete solution. You're found more often in the marketplace. There's more doorways to your brand. And if you combine those two things and focusing on a niche and building a platform business, I have found that it will grow your net worth faster and that it's a family office strategy I see deployed over and over again. And it's something that you know private equity firms and groups like Amazon, when they do things like acquire Whole Foods, you know, you can see that in the public news, you know, week to week as well. Right, right. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, as an entrepreneur, I mean, these are the things that certainly I'm seeing within my own businesses as strategies. What about people who are just ultimately investing with, you know, W-2 income? I mean, I literally have, you know, I have my neighbor's, you know, a seven-figure guy, but he's a W-2 income guy. I mean, is there any ideas for these kinds of guys who they're not business people? You know, but they're making a lot of money. And right, right now I see those people and what kills me is I see a lot of those people giving their money blindly to wealth managers and getting, you know, these huge fees and then they get thrown into mutual funds and then get another huge load there. And before you know it, I mean, they're, they're making nothing. Right. For sure. I think that happens a lot. So I'm right. glad you brought that up. I think that serves your audience well. There's got to be hundreds of people that will listen to this and that describes them, they feel like. So, you know, I shy away from giving anything to be like blanket oh, sure. advice, of sure. course, right? But some ideas to research and to look into to get the wheels turning would be a lot of families we work with are leveraging debt that you can get quite easily on real estate assets to grow your wealth in another way that's, that is not, quote unquote, just in the stock market. It's market related because real estate goes up and down and nothing is for sure. But a lot of clients will go into something and They'll let's say that you can get a fiveplex apartment building for you know a million dollars list price, or maybe it's more likely going to be higher. But let's just say a million, so the math is very easy. You might have to put two hundred thousand down on that. Go to your local bank and get um, a loan for the other eighty percent. You know the other eight hundred thousand. And normally people put you know thirty year debt on their residential houses, but some families I know will 
put, you know, a 15 year term or a 20 year term and they'll make it so that the apartment building will bring in just enough income to service the debt, maybe a little bit more, but not much more. And then what happens is over the 15 years, as long as you've been relatively conservative on the debt load and that math of what term length on the uh, years of the loan, you know, after that 15 year term or 20 year term, you've turned your 200K into a million dollars plus any appreciation that happens. The market could go down. You know, it could depreciate, but over 15 years, 20 years, most real estate markets tend to, you know, head north unless you buy at the absolute worst time and get unlucky or choose a rough area or don't have proper insurance and something bad happens, of course. But I find that some people, for whatever reason, just are blind to the opportunities to get hard assets. You know, people will typically need apartment buildings to rent and live in till the end of time. And have that be as one simple component to just to consider. It's not right for everybody, but that's something to think about. Another thing to think about is a lot of families make their wealth through good timing and an area that they're both passionate about, but leverages their skill set and is good timing to get into. And you might be a corporate attorney and you might be a partner and you have 800000 a year coming in and you've been doing that for 10 years and you've got a decent amount socked away for college and a little bit for retirement and you know, depending on your risk tolerances, et cetera, you might say, you know, I see a couple of these trends coming up and I want to figure out in a way that's risk appropriate for me how to get access to those. It could be, again, through the markets. It could be through a private equity fund manager that is only investing in a new hot stem cell area or a new biotech area or a new area that you decided that you want to move up the educational learning curve on. Or it could be buying a small operating business in that area. But I bring this up as an example because I do see some families who they made their money in manufacturing or they made their money in biotech, but now they see a niche within healthcare. They get really passionate about it. They research it to death. They go to every conference on it and they really position themselves in there to do well. And I think a lot of people hold themselves back from recreating themselves if they don't have to, if they still have that nice cushy job and it's bringing in a lot of income. But I do know families that do this and reposition themselves and, you know, it might seem foreign, but you know, if you do want to gain more control, it's going to take rolling up your sleeves in some fashion or paying a different set of brains to oversee your money than you currently are. Like one of those two things has to change or you're just going to have, you know, probably a similar allocation and similar results than you're currently getting. You talked about so many principles there that I think my audience is going to start thinking that I paid you <laughs> to, 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 to talk about because we talk about so many things that you just mentioned there that it's, you know, really worth sort of repeating. But, you know, one of the things that you talked about was leverage and the fact that good debt, you know, debt that you're using to amplify your wealth is critically important. So many people are scared of debt because of the Dave Ramseys of the world telling them not to get involved, right. but there's ways to use it safely. You also talked about direct investments. You talked about even real estate, which we talk a lot about on this show. One of the things that I advocate, obviously you have to, you know, know trust and have a pretty good feeling for sponsors, but getting involved, you know, passively is, is with syndications, for example, and real estate syndications, a great opportunity because then you still got all of the upside and you don't really have to do anything. You can be a limited partner. So it sounds like a lot of those things that you're talking about are the things that we talk about on this show. When you have a family office, and I'm switching gears a little bit because there are people on this listening to this show who part of how they make their money, including myself 
is a part of what I do is I'm a syndicator, right? So multifamily real estate or resorts or even life settlements, et cetera. When you want to get an attention or if you want to get exposure to a family office, what kinds of things, you know, should you be offering? What, I mean, what does a family office want? There are different classes of family offices. You know, there's small ones that are all real estate focused. There's small ones that are very direct investment focused, but they still want control. So they choose and pick their bets very carefully. And then there's some that just want minority investments and they're busy being an attorney 60 hours a week. And so they want hands-off investments in things like multifamily or self-storage or life settlements, et cetera. So there's different ones by them, but there are similar characteristics and golden threads between them. I mean, a lot of them, if they're well-known at all or well-connected at all, they get pinged all of the time for capital. And because of that, you really have to respect their time and be very concise. And oftentimes, we'll get 700 to 1,000 incoming emails in a day. We had one day last week where we had 140 phone calls incoming in one day. And we're not the Rockefeller family. We're not you know, Bill Gates' Cascade family office. You know, We are the family office club. And so imagine how many more interactions those groups have. And so the point of that is that, you know, I do not want to get an email. They do not want to get an email that's five paragraphs long telling you why their investment is the best in the world or their company is the best in the world or their new app is the best in the world. And many times people don't take the time to read somebody's website, see what they want to invest in, and then write that one sentence that not only describes exactly what you do and why you want to talk to them or what action you want them to take, but how is that relevant to what their mandate is? And if you don't take time to do that, they're just not going to respond. If you're too lazy to read their website or you're too lazy to summarize the value of what you're doing down to one or two sentences, then they're going to be too lazy to read your seven paragraphs and try to figure out that one or two sentences. And sometimes I'll tell people, they'll tell me what they're doing and it's going to take them like, it takes them four minutes to explain it. And I say, okay, but what is your number one thing that makes you unique? Because I know 250 multifamily, you know, syndicators and independent sponsors out there. And they'll say, oh, well, it's kind of hard to say really concisely. And it's like, well, that might be your exact (laughs) problem. You know, if you can't say it concisely, how is the investor supposed to tell their wife or their partner or their board in a concise way? They can't. They literally can't. They'd be investing on blind faith or they're not going to be investing. And so much of investing is about education because if you don't trust that the person's going to make money, you don't trust they'll be a good steward of the wealth and you don't trust the process, then you won't invest. And if you don't know how it works, it's pretty hard to trust it unless the person is your brother or your wife. There's usually, there's got to be some education on what's going on with that money behind the curtain. So education is huge. Conciseness is huge. The more important the contact, the less you should be writing. And there's a famous saying in copywriting that I'm sorry that my message was so long, I didn't have any more time to write it. And many people think the opposite. Oh, I should spend hours crafting this essay on why this is the best investment opportunity ever, when really they should be spending hours crafting the 12 words which describe it in the best way. Good stuff, Richard. I don't want to hold you for too long. You know, with your experience, you know, having worked with ultra wealthy people, is there one thing that surprised you more than anything else? I think one thing that surprised me more than anything else is the level of frugality or perceived frugality of billionaires and people who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. On one hand, they'll pay a lot for value and they'll pay a lot for something that they need that's strategic to them. But they sometimes are more frugal 
than somebody who's worth only a few million dollars on some things. And the reason is that they didn't get to where they are by accident. And none of my clients inherited their wealth. They created their wealth through deciding what is of value in the world that deserves their energy and their capital and really pulling on those levers and directly slashing anything that doesn't have the value that represents the dollar that should be matched to it. And people don't get that. They think they're a billionaire. They should be able to pay a $20,000 a month retainer. You know, So I think that's something really important to keep in mind. Like At the heart of it, these are value assessors, and they're experts at it, and they're the winners in the capitalism game, and they became titans of their industry for a reason. So I think that, that oftentimes gets forgotten on yeah. the outside, I think. Great. Where can we learn more about you and your work? You know, if you're a podcast lover, we have our family office podcast, but, you know, a very inexpensive way to get a ton of information on family offices. We have this book called The Single Family Office on Amazon. I've got it priced as cheap as Amazon will allow me to. I think it's free on Kindle or 99 cents or, you know, six, seven bucks a paperback. And then we give away a lot of free content uh, on our website, which is familyoffices.com. Richard Wilson, thank you so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Million dollars yet, okay? I mean, I plan to, but I don't have it yet. But I will say this. Right now, you know, when you look at what Richard just told us, I seem to be doing everything right, at least from my perspective. Now, what did Richard say that the ultra-wealthy do? They invest in real tangible assets directly. Things like real estate. They invest in businesses. They rely on leverage. And most of all, they educate themselves. Sound familiar? Well, I hope so. Listen, these are the tenets of wealth building. And that's what I speak about on this show all the time. That's what my book is about, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. Get it? Get a copy of it, wealthformula.com for free. Or, you know, just text me at 44222 and text Wealth Formula, one word, and you will get that book. And you'll see it's basically what Richard was talking about. So if you have any doubts about whether you should in, be investing outside of the equity markets and that, you know, maybe it's too risky and that, you know, nobody really does that and you don't want to be the oddball, well, hopefully you can see that there are some pretty wealthy people out there who depend primarily on private investing. So what can you do? Well, if you're an accredited investor, Join Investor Club. We talked about that. Now, there's great opportunities there. Now, what Richard talks about is what we do in Investor Club, not only with deal flow, but also education. And if you're not accredited, that's fine, too. Find private investments like Turnkey Rentals. You know, you've got Narada that sponsors our show or American Homeowner Preservation with George. There's stuff out there, folks. You don't have to put your money in this ridiculous Wall Street casino. There's stuff out there that will create wealth for you far more efficiently and quicker than stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. That's for sure. 
And that's it for me this week, folks. This is Buck Chaffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast, signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.